0: Lori, finally doing this what's going on
1: oh you know just uh just uh promoting my book and uh you know loving new york city coming back to life
0: i've only been harassing you for around two years to do this so finally thank you for giving me some of your time
1: absolutely absolutely it's my pleasure i know it's it's been uh uh, you know i'm at the mercy of my publicist so i'm 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 happy that she gave us the blessing and happy to talk about both my books
0: yeah, well, both of your books. But first of all, I don't believe you decided to go on Joe Rogan besides me. this
1: oh, <laughs> What I know. an awesome
0: podcast that was. That was incredible.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I was I was very surprised and really pleased that he that he wanted to have me on. And uh, it was great. You know, it was really um, it's a real trip to, to be down in Austin and do this kind of thing in person. And, you know, he's got such a huge platform. It's really it's wild
0: and did you see any differences in the book sales or the rankings of the book? I know it was going to be a bestseller anyway, but because you were on that show,
1: uh, apparently, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't follow it too closely, but the publisher did say, right? Actually, when I said that I was going to go on Joe Rogan, they were like, "Well, we ought to think about maybe uh, upping our, our our order. You know, we, we might we might need to you know print more books." So, and, and I do think that, and I'm not sure if she was being facetious or not, but I, I do think that there was a, an appreciable bump. Um, you know, what I noticed is my Instagram followers. So okay. uh, right away when the when the episode dropped, I got a bunch of new followers. And then last week, Joe really generously made a post about the book. And mm-hmm. so that gave it kind of a second bump. So, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm up into the uh, five figures now, which is exciting.
0: That's impressive. So you have two books. It's Bourdain, the definitive oral, uh, oral biography, but also you wrote World Travel. And they're both staples for a Bourdain fan or a travel fan. Both those books, fun to write
1: yeah you know yes and no i mean it's um uh, world travel was something that i started with tony before he died and uh, i had we had written a cookbook together called appetites that published in 2016. so i knew how much fun it was to collaborate with him and i knew what a you know what a rewarding experience that was meant to be and we did start world travel and then he died very unexpectedly so in some ways that one was 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 very difficult, you know, it was very lonely because of what it was supposed to be and then what it ended up being. Um, I think of the two, it's kind of the lighter, more entertaining of, you know, of the two Mm -hmm. books. Um, But it was, for me, a heavier lift just emotionally. Uh, And I also had to do that one first. It was due, uh, you know, first. So I really had to kind of bear down and and work on it at a time when I was was really, you know, grieving uh, Tony's death. Um, and Bourdain, the Definitive Oral Biography is arguably a heavier book. You know, it really kind of gets into and it's not a completely heavy book. There's plenty of funny stuff in there and, um, you know, great stories. But it's uh, it does deal with all the kind of, you know, good and bad of, of Tony's life. Um, and that one I found easier in some ways because I was constantly meeting with people and talking to people. And I felt a lot less lonely because I was spending all this time. With lots and lots of people who knew Tony, uh, some of whom I had never met before. So I got to meet a bunch of new people and hear stories I had never heard before and hear analysis and things about Tony that, that I never knew. And I thought I knew this guy inside and out.
0: It's weird the effect he has on people. And when celebrities or athletes or someone passes away that you have a connection with always, it's always like, oh, that bothered me. His affected so many, obviously yours, of course, on the forefront. It was a gut punch. We felt like we knew him. So when he passed away, it actually like it affected people and it, it always blew my mind. So I don't know how you even dealt with it. But with the book, I got to tell you, Laurie, I, I got the book sent to me early. I felt like the cool kid at school with the new with the new PlayStation. I was mm-hmm. reading on the subway mm-hmm. and everyone's giving a look like, how'd you get that book? So thank you for sending it to me early. I felt like the yes. cool kid at school again.
1: <laughs> yeah, we love uh, we love to make you feel cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, I'm really happy to have both of these, these books out in the world now. And I think you're right that that people really – Took this one very, very personally. Uh, you know, I try and think of comparable deaths. I mean, you know, Tony's death is is a in a category of its own for me because you know, working for him was my job for a long time, and also he was somebody that I really, I really loved and admired, and you know, we had a great professional relationship. Uh, so it was it was losing a friend, losing an employer. Uh, but I think about people like you know Robin Williams. I think that was a comparable where people were just they just couldn't believe. You know, you see what product an entertainer or a celebrity puts out in the world and it's you know it's joy and laughter and you know heartfelt performances and you just sort of don't think about the fact that there's a human being there that that's you know in some cases really suffering um so yeah you know the the day that tony died the fact that both the current at the time president and the immediate former president both made a statement about his death within an hour or two of the news breaking it was like, oh, wow, this is really, this is a bigger story than I realized, you know, that, that he really impacted a lot of people.
0: Your book, did you always knew you wanted to write the oral biography? Because I'm gonna tell you, Lori. When, when I got it sent to me, when I read it, I go, now here's how little I know about the publishing world. I go, that's kind of lazy. She went around interviewing people, but I bet you this was 5 million times more difficult. So did you always know you want to do the oral, bi- oral biography of it?
1: Well, uh, you know, it was it was an idea that came up uh, in a conversation with our publisher and editor, Daniel Halpern, and uh, Tony's agent, Kim Witherspoon, who is now my agent. Um, I I, I will say that uh, that it is, I think it's not I don't think it was lazy. I mean, I I did a lot of work, but I do think it is, um, you know, I have never written a biography before. That is a very specific uh, literary form, and it, I think it takes a lot more time. You know, if, to do a really well-researched, deeply reported biography, that could be a 10-year process. Uh, and we didn't want to wait 10 years. You know, we wanted to get something out that was that felt immediate and that also came from a place of knowing and understanding. So if, if the publisher were to commission a biography, a straight biography, I wouldn't have been the one to do it. I mean, there are people who's, who are very good at that. Um, but so this fit with my skills. It fit with the timeline that we wanted to, to create it on. And it also was a nice reflection of the way that Tony told stories, you know, that, or, and the way that he asked questions and sat back and let people tell their own stories on television, you know, in their own words. So it, it just made a lot of sense for a lot of reasons.
0: Yeah, I was two pages into it after reading about his brother, Like you know, his brother starts it. And I was going to be like. Laurie, I was so wrong. This is the greatest way ever yeah. to do a book. <laughs> Let me ask you this, because you interviewed hundreds of people. Two questions. Did you personally interview everybody, number one? And number two, how do you possibly and how time-consuming is it just to compile everything to put it into a flowing book from childhood? You didn't jump around. It was childhood till his death.
1: Mm-hmm. So I, I interviewed not, yeah, I'd say I interviewed about 100 people, maybe a few over 100. I did interview them all myself. Uh, And it was over the course of about two and a half years. Uh, So, uh, you know, it's funny when I think I'm gonna try and think about now, like how did I put this thing together? It was like in a little bit of a fugue state, I think, because I, I know I had an outline. I had I knew what the sort of major points of his life were, uh, and I just um, you know sort of had a list of people that I interviewed in no particular order. It was about who was available when and who, you know, one person introducing me to the next. So it really skipped around a lot from different points in his life. And, uh, you know, you just you kind of understand the stories that certain people have are going to fit into these three buckets or these three chapters. That, and so you just start, you know, do the interview, read the whole thing. It might be a couple thousand, maybe eight or nine thousand words. And you go through and you pick out the stuff that you know is really important and really is going to make uh, the, the, the story move forward. So it's kind of... Um, I can't think of a great analogy. It's not really like a quilt, you know, because you're starting – maybe if it's a quilt, if you started with 100,000 pieces and then you winnow it down to 12,000 pieces. But it's – yeah, it was a really interesting process. I had some people that I spoke with uh, at the beginning who had done this kind of thing and got a lot of great advice from them and and just sort of put my head down and did the work.
0: I have a lot of authors on, and I always ask a question. Like Eric Lawson just came on, and he picked a rant – you know, he just wrote a book about Churchill. So you're writing this book. Did you have any pressure on you feeling like people might try? You would never do it. But would you try people like oh, people might capitalize on the Bourdain name? Did you feel like you had to rush it at all? Because like if a true crime book comes out, people always like, let me write the book quick. or Let me write the biography on Aaron Judge before anyone else does. Did you have Mm -hmm. any pressure with that?
1: I you know, I I wouldn't say pressure. I mean, I think everyone at the publisher was very understanding that this was going to take as long as it was going to take. But there are certainly plenty of people who uh, made themselves known right away and continue to do so. There's a lot of interest in writing a, a, a real, you know, deeply reported biography. Uh, and right away when Tony died, there were people coming out, you know, saying, I want to do the biography. I want to do a film. I want to do a, you know, a fictionalized version of Tony's life. Um and it's understandable. You know, it's a it's a fantastic story. And he, he was such a huge presence. I think it was important. Uh, you know, I, I felt some sense of person that it, that it would I would like to have, uh, you know, the, one of the first to come out, uh, you know, with with the blessing of the estate. And I think that's a very important distinction. You know, there I think there will certainly be many other. Projects that will reflect people's interest in Tony that will not have the blessing of the estate. To me, that was very, very important to know that a large chunk of the uh, of the of the money that's made on this book is actually going to Tony's estate, which is to oh, wow. say his daughter. So, uh, you know, I, I I got paid as a writer would, but um, but most of the money is is actually going to for her future, and that I feel really good about that. That's um, awesome.
0: So, the book read like a rock memoir, memoir. like mm-hmm. he was, you know, his early drug use actually surprised me, but he would be, you know, drugging and partying and doing this yet going to work and living a normal life. So he wasn't just this chef on the street who had a heroin problem. He was like a rock star even back then to his friends before the whole world knew him. Right.
1: I guess so, yeah. I mean, in a, in a small way. I mean, I think he always idolized rock stars. I think that mm-hmm. was sort of a lot of inspiration for his uh, personal aesthetic and certainly the music that he listened to and the way that he lived. I think, you know, he would talk about, he, I'm sure this is on record somewhere, that he thought really the coolest job in the world would be to play bass in a band, you know, and, and if things had gone differently, I'm sure that's really what he wanted to do is is play bass. But barring that, he became a chef. So I think, yeah, he always had a charisma. He was always the best storyteller, the fun guy, you know, he would get people kind of hyped up about whatever it is that he was into. He was very good at kind of pulling people along into his enthusiasms. So I think, yeah, in a, in a way he had that kind of, you know, Mick Jagger quality among his friends as, as kind of like the guy who's doing the cool thing.
0: He was like simple and complex, and that sounds generic, but on one page his brother would say, All he wanted was to tan, have some beer, and have some fried food on the beach. And then the next thing, people were like, no, he always wanted to have a TV show with chefs and talking about their life. So there was like so much about him, like so much going on in that head of his, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I was lucky enough to speak with his mother, Gladys Bourdain. Um, She died in January 2020. I spoke with her in the fall of 2018, and she talked about how from a very young age, and of course, you know. A mother is going to you know have the most tender and most flattering memories of their child and you know i understand that but you know she saw and she also was somebody who was very exacting and she wouldn't say something if it wasn't true uh she said you know he was always a writer he always had a talent for words he was an early reader he was a guy who was really driven by this desire to express himself in writing and in the spoken word and that's just I mean, it's something you're kind of born with or you're not. So that that guided a lot of, of who he was in terms of being a, a great storyteller and a funny guy and a wonderful correspondent. And, you know, he was interested in um, in drawing for a while. He thought he wanted to be like a comic book artist, like R. Crumb or, you know, any of those guys. Uh, and at some point, I think he realized that he didn't quite have the chops to, to make it big. And, I, you know, I don't even know what making it big is. As, as a comic artist, I think you're still probably – Financially struggling, even if you're Harvey Picar or whomever, uh, but he found a steady, steady employment uh, in the kitchen, and, and it turned out to be a culture and a, and a pursuit that he truly loved.
0: You needed to write the book. You were the person that had to write the book. You were his right-hand girl for so long. So before we kind of, and everything you're doing is just Bourdain. It's a Bourdain podcast. The documentary videos. Are you overwhelmed right now? Or are you just like kind of like accepting? Like you're completely engrossed in it. Like did it? Ha- did that hurt your grieving process?
1: Uh, no, I think it actually helped, you know, to have this these projects, these two books where I had to spend a lot of time with Tony's words, with his television images, with these memories of him and people who also missed him. I think it was very helpful. It was like an extended memorial service in a way, you know, to really dig in and remember what was great about this person and to, and to learn more about them from the other people around them. So, you know, it's been... Three and a half years now, uh, and, and I think I think what's probably coming for me is a is a is a new phase of grief. You know, once all this is done, and it's these two books are out in the world now, and I don't have another Bourdain project, uh, you know, on the table. I think once all of that dies down, I think then it'll be kind of sad, you know, because it's it's sort of like well, now my my job working for Tony is really done. You know, uh, I was grateful after he died that I didn't. That I didn't have to completely break it off and go and find another job and, you know, do something else. That I was able to really spend another couple of years processing the grief and, and making something out of it that hopefully will bring other people comfort and, and, you know, answer some questions.
0: You mentioned back in New York. Where'd you grow up?
1: I grew up in uh, upstate New York outside of Syracuse. So uh, normal,
0: I, normal childhood, everything normal with it?
1: Yeah, I'd say, you know, mom and dad together, still still together, married 52 years, um, raised Catholic, uh, you know, small town, middle class. I was a good student. I had an older sister and a dog and, you know, was in the Girl Scouts. I mean, yeah, pretty much like a typical American childhood of the 1970s and 80s.
0: So you're this travel and uh, food writer now. Was that always a staple of your life growing up, big traveler growing up or no?
1: Not so much. I mean, we would yeah, uh, family vacations, but nothing crazy. I mean, I never got on an airplane until I was uh, more than halfway through college. Uh, it just, you know, I think it's it just wasn't, if we were going to go somewhere, we would get in the car and go, even to Florida. We drove three times. We went from Syracuse to Florida to <laughs> Disney World, which is a long yeah. drive with kids. I mean, I give my parents a lot of credit for having the patience to put a, you know, at the earliest, I, I was four and my sister was seven and they put us in the back of the back seat of the pickup truck and we drove down to Orlando. I mean, God bless them. I, 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 I barely can get on the subway with my kid without being like, shut up. What are you doing? You know, so, um, yeah, you know, just that kind of, you know, family vacations, nothing too crazy. And it really wasn't until um, after college and then even after that, I mean, Tony really opened my eyes to the possibility of travel. And I I never uh, I I didn't get to go to Asia until probably seven or eight years ago. Tony um, said, you know, at some point I I had a child and then he was a little bit older and I felt like I could I could leave for a week or two and not worry. And Tony said, do you want to go along with us? You know, choose a location on the list and I'll pay for your expenses and you can just go and hang out and see what we do. And if you want to write about some aspect of wherever we are, you can do that. So I had uh, six or seven really phenomenal trips that that Tony paid for and that I was really just there to sort of observe and soak it all up. I'm really, really grateful for that. Just fill in the gap
0: with me from not being a traveler, driving to Mm -hmm. Disney in the pickup truck to Bourdain. How'd that connection get made?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I was always, I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, I I don't necessarily know that, it, you know, food came later, but I always, always, as from the time I was a little kid, I was always kind of writing my own story in my head. And if I ever, you know, any kind of project for school, if I could do uh, some kind of a writing thing, that's always what I wanted to do. I wrote plays and, you know, commercials. And, you know, that was always big for me. At, at some point in college, um, I started cooking a lot just because I was a vegetarian and I was, you know, poor, like all college students are, or except, <laughs> you know, the rich ones, uh, which was not me. Uh, so I started cooking a lot. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe I can put these two things together, you know, because, uh, well, you know, when you're 22, uh, just out of college, you don't really know anything. And you can, you can try and be a writer, but it's like, you need to learn something about the world. And food seemed like a really good place to, to start with that. So I, so I up going to cooking school after a couple of years. And, uh, and my first job out of cooking school was as Mario Batali's assistant. Oh, wow. And I, I did that for three and a half years. And I, you know, I went into it saying like, I want, you know, I, I, I know how to cook, but I want to be a writer. And it was a, it was a really good fit. I mean, you know, Mario's had some tough times. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, you know, he sort of off uh, off the grid now uh, after some some stuff that he got into. But um, at the time, this was in 1999, and I did that job for three and a half years. It was an amazing education in everything: restaurants, food, television, magazines, you know, wine, real estate, business, like just all of it. You know, he was at the center of the world in a way. He and his mm-hmm. his partner they had the hottest restaurant in New York at Babo. And that's where my office was. So I really um, it was like a graduate school of of culinary school, you know, being in the middle of that. And and Mario was really generous to his credit. He was generous about um, giving me opportunities. You know, uh, I, I worked with him on two cookbooks and he introduced me to a lot of editors who then I would end up working with and, and doing freelance writing. Um, so it was, you know, it was a it was a tough job in a lot of ways. And, and you know, he's 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 done what he's done. But, you know, for me as a young person in my 20s, straight out of cooking school, it was an amazing opportunity.
0: And then he made the introduction to Bourdain.
1: That's right. Yeah, I was I was finishing up my time working with Mario and he had met Tony who had published Kitchen Confidential and Tony was looking for someone to edit and test recipes for Anthony Bourdain's Leal cookbook, which was his first cookbook came out a couple of years after kitchen confidential. And I had done that work with Mario and you know, he was happy to recommend me and Tony hired me sight unseen just based on Mario's recommendation. So, you know, those two guys, I mean, they you know, I really, um, I owe them a lot, you know, they really kind of set me up for success.
0: Initial uh, introduction to Bourdain, were you nervous? Because, you know, Mario was a huge head figure. Like, people forget Mm -hmm. how big he was. He was on page six every day with Mm -hmm. the purple shoes and everything. He was a a huge figure. So first introduction to Bourdain.
1: So Mario didn't introduce me, but, you know, it was – I think we – met over the telephone but i had read kitchen confidential and i was expecting this kind of larger than life swaggering you know smoking and uh i I just expected him to be the same guy that you see on the page and when i met him in person it really wasn't like that and he was very subdued and quiet and i think he did smoke but he i think he always was smoking back then uh and it was a pretty quick meeting it was myself and, and tony and a few other people and um yeah, he was much more low key and a little bit shy and a little bit socially awkward in a way that was surprising to me. But I mean, I'm sure you saw in the book, a lot of people noticed that in him, you know, people that that, again, expected him to be the guy that, you know, the swaggering pirate from Kitchen Confidential. And he could be that at times. But I think in the day to day, he was a, he was a quieter and more introspective guy.
0: It's so funny. You said that I had Andy Ricker on who to this day was my favorite episode. That's the Chiang Mai episode. And for me, that was always like vintage Bourdain. Like they Mm -hmm. drank, they ate, they were in like the tuk-tuk. And for me, Mm -hmm. and I remember when I had Andy on talk about his book, we talked about Anthony. I'm like, how was it just like partying on set, you know, like being naive. You're like, it's on Mm -hmm. TV. So it's real. And he would always say, Mike, after like a scene was shot, he'd walk by himself, just Mm -hmm. sit down by himself and like, would always get lost in his thoughts. Was that something that happened later on when he became uber famous or was that something he always did? Uh,
1: you know, I can't speak to uh, the way that he was on set in the early days. I mean, from from personal experience, I can't speak to it. But mm-hmm. it seemed like, you know, in the, and this gets it's discussed in the book. Uh, the people that were with him in the early days of a cook's tour and no reservations, uh, it was a, There was a little more camaraderie, there was a little more kind of we're all in it together and, you know, we're partying for real and we're all in one van and we're all staying in the crappy hotel or, you know, flying together there and back. And I, I think maybe, um, you know, when the scene was over, the party continued and if it was appropriate, you know, in a lot of those <laughs> early days. Uh, but I did see it myself that, um, you know, you could be, the energy could be high while you're shooting a scene and you're kind of vibing and you're, you know, you're, you know, making each other laugh. And then once the scene's over, it does. I mean, so I, I shot an episode, uh, of parts unknown with Tony. I should say, I I shot a scene from an episode. It was the Queens episode of parts unknown. Uh, we went out to aqueduct racetrack together and, uh, and we had a great time, you know, and I don't drink anymore, but I was still drinking then. And, you know, we drank a bunch of beer and ate, you know, the Jamaican beef patties. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, the food is not fancy there, but it's it's just exactly what you want. You know, you can hold your patty in one hand and you can, you know, smack your smack the rail with your racing form and the other. It's perfect. Right. And we had a great time and he's hilarious. And just, you know, we were just talking nonsense and making each other laugh and you know, a little bit talking about the horses, talking about queens, whatever. Um and then, this, and then, you know, the director said, "All right, I think we got everything we need." And it was just like, you know, it was just like it's over, you know. And I was, I was kind of like, "Let's get another beer," you know. And he's like, "No, nah, I got to get back to the city." Like it was, that's a little bit like, "Oh, did I do something wrong?" But I think that's that, you know. He had to sort of have a boundary between on camera and real life, just to, I think probably just to maintain his sanity, you know.
0: When did when did you jump on with the trips? You said not no reservations. You were, you came on with parts unknown.
1: Yes, so, so I worked uh, when I started working for Tony in 2009. They were still doing parts unknown. I'm sorry, they were still doing no reservations. Uh, you know, I had, my son was less than a year old at that point, and I just I didn't really feel like I could you know leave the house, much less you know get on a plane and go to you know <laughs> Tokyo. Uh, so in 2014 was the first time I started traveling with the crew, and that was that was uh, for the parts unknown uh, Hue reservation, the central part of Vietnam. And, uh, you know, what an introduction to traveling with Tony, to go to Vietnam and, uh, you know, ride around on the back of his scooter and eat all this amazing food and just sort of like take it all in. And this place that he loved so much, mm-hmm. you know, he really was such a, a fan of the country and, and tried to get back there as much as he could. So it was it was pretty special.
0: And where else have you traveled with him?
1: Uh, so the year after that, we went to Okinawa, Japan, which was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and That was my first time in Japan. And, you know, everyone said it's like. It's like saying you've been to the States when you've only been to Hawaii. You know, it's like so different from the rest of Japan, but it was fascinating. Uh, And then the next year we went back to Japan. Uh, We did Tokyo and a city called Kanazawa, which is on kind of the northwest part of the of the island. Uh, Let's see. After that, it was Sri Lanka, which was super cool. Uh, And then that same trip, we went to Manila for a couple of days in the Philippines. And then the last trip I took was in Hong Kong in 2018. So I always tried to go uh, as far as possible. You know, if Tony's paying for a business class (laughs) airfare, like, I'm not going to go to Miami, you know, I'm going to go to Tokyo. Um, And he was a really good sport about it. You know, it's like I fly for business class, you fly business class. It's like, okay, I I got spoiled. I mean, (laughs) it's really hard to like be my, you know, my actual self and be like, oh, I'm in the coach seat and I can't check a bag. And
0: (laughs) what kind of boss was he?
1: he was, for me, he was great. He was, um, I think he was very perceptive about how different people, what motivates different people. And I think that came from close to 30 years of being a, a manager, essentially a chef is a manager, you know, more so than somebody who cooks. And so I think he really understood people. He understood how to motivate them and he understood how to read the differences between people. So I know, you know, in the book, a lot of the guys that talk about being on the road with him and making television, he could be really hard on them. He could be really demanding and sometimes unreasonable. Uh, but it was always in the service of the show. And it was always in the service of not letting anyone get complacent about anything and making sure that the show was as good as it could be. Um, I didn't have that pressure of making a television show with him. You know, the stakes were lower for me. It was, let's make sure your schedule is accurate. Let's make sure, you know, that I'm, Answering questions for people and I'm talking to people and handling communication so that you don't have to uh, you know, just Let's make sure that I'm Accountable at all hours of the day. So whatever you need I, I can provide it for you So it was a difficult job in some ways, but not difficult like you know handling a half million dollar budget to make television You know in the Congo. I mean that's a lot of pressure, right? So for me, he was he was always really gentle and really, um, if anything went wrong, he was really understanding. And, you know, things didn't really go wrong very much. Uh, and again, it was, you know, if they did, it usually wasn't my fault, you know. But if it was, <laughs> I tried to be really, one thing he taught me was to be very, um, just to own it, you know, just to say like, yeah, you know what? I screwed up and not throw somebody under else under the bus and just take responsibility for it. And if he, if he saw that you were doing that, it would always be OK, you know um and if and if he caught you throwing somebody else under the bus it was a real problem you know unfortunately i never made that mistake <laughs> um so yeah he was and he was very generous um he's just the best i mean i really you know i was i was already i think 34 or 35 when i started working as as his assistant and that's kind of old to be an assistant you know frankly and i had already done a lot of other stuff um and i think he res- he respected that you know that i wasn't a 22 year old fresh out of college you know, he he always gave me opportunities to do things that sort of use my brain. Uh, he gave me a lot of uh, professional writing opportunities and editing uh, books for his imprint. And then, of course, co-authoring the cookbook. So I felt like there was a mutual respect there. And he understood that, you know, I, I brought a lot to the table, not just uh, organizing his Google calendar, you know.
0: Writing this book, any reservations about, because there was some negative stuff said about him with his older friends. Oh, he became famous and forgot about us. Any, uh, any reservations about writing that or that's self-writing about that?
1: No, you know, I think I really wanted this book to be uh, very honest and, and as much of a 360-degree view of the man as was possible. Uh, so, you know, anyone can write a book that's like, this guy was great. And there are plenty of people that that talk about how great he was in various ways. But I think to be to be compelling and to be complete and honest, it's got to also include the stuff that was not so great, you know. And And as I said in the introduction, you know, he was... He made a lot of people happy and he also, you know, made some bad decisions and he hurt some people sometime. And I think it's important uh, to get past that sort of romantic ideal of who he was, because everyone is like, oh, he's the Marlboro Man, you know, <laughs> He's uh, Kamau Bell said he's America's James Bond. And, you know, all of that is true, but it's part of a, of a carefully curated image, you know. So I think to understand how someone can get to a place where they choose to take their own life, you have to understand all of the the good and the bad and the nuances and the you know the the fullness of a, of a life.
0: You talked about that. It was perfectly you just said that because it sets me up to the next segment. I read the food, you know, the travel one and mm-hmm. it was go here, party here and I felt like a little kid I was writing down okay, when I go here I'm going to go here, here and here which he always did. But in this book it said that even early on he talked about suicide and death a lot. When you just thought it was going to be food, travel, partying, did you know even early on suicide and death was spoken about a lot with him?
1: You know, I was I was aware that it was uh, kind of a shorthand and kind of a shtick, really. You know, it was a, it's a very e- I mean, Tony was a hyperbolic guy in every way. So, you know, why make a kind of a mild joke about, oh, this, you know, this hamburger makes me want to puke when you can say this hamburger makes me want to kill myself. You know, you're going <laughs> to go for the, you know, the the highest octane punchline, Right. So that's a very easy um uh, it's a very easy way to make your point. And it was um, something that he constantly joked about in a way that I think truly was a joke and truly was a rhetorical device of, of, of showing you just how strongly he felt about something, even if it was a joke. Um, you know, in his, in his book, Medium Raw, which was his 2010 nonfiction follow-up to Kitchen Confidential, he wrote very de- in a very detailed way about feeling suicidal after the, de- uh, after the end of his first marriage. And that he was sort of playing, you know, road chicken with himself late one night in the Caribbean, uh, you know, driving fast on windy mountain roads and, you know, sort of letting the the fates take the wheel. You know, he survived that, you know, and and it's it's tough to say if that was, you know, uh, an elaborated um, story or if that really happened. He no one knows he was by himself. But so I don't think suicide as a as a consideration was a completely unknown concept to him. But but I. You know, it, get, the fact that he that he did ultimately commit suicide, I, I do feel strongly that it was a uh, not a premeditated act, not a spot, you know, that it was a spontaneous, that he was having a hard time. You know, when you're really down in it, sometimes you have really bad ideas, you know, and and the hope is that you don't act on them and that you're able to, to reach out for, for help. And I think there was just a super dark moment for him where he just had an idea and he acted on it. He was an impulsive guy, you know, uh, all throughout his life. And unfortunately, I think that that uh, that impulsiveness um, clearly did not serve him at the end of his life.
0: You use the word dark. And that's actually in my little index card here to say dark because the book was and it sounds cliche, but it was a roller coaster. It starts off, you know, normal dude and then Kif- kitchen confidential and then the TV shows and then CNN. It's like it's, you know, the Bourdain trains going up and up and up mm. and up. Mm -hmm. And then I don't want it's not to be a gossip show, but unfortunately, when he met Asia, it seemed to start going down a little bit uh, with everything. When you're reading the book and doing the interviews and compiling, did you notice when it started getting darker and darker and darker for him?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I was working for him at that time, so it is definitely a uh, a mark in time. You know, when he uh, got involved in this relationship, that he, for whatever reason, decided to sort of put everything into that basket you know it became an absolute obsession and you know he was an obsessive guy he was whether it was work or heroin or jujitsu or in this case romantic love i mean he didn't really seem to possess the ability to do anything in moderation so he met a woman and fell in love with her and he couldn't help himself but to make this romance the center of his life and i think the more tumultuous it was the more appealing it was to him you know it was it was uh you know and it's a lot has been said about about you know the reason for his suicide and and she's been demonized in some ways and i, I don't want to jump on that bandwagon um you know the the circumstances are i think matter of public record but um you know it was it was tony who who put himself in this position. He knew that he was, that his romantic obsession had the potential to become really, uh, terrible and really, uh, unhealthy, you know, and he had friends telling him as much. Um, and it was a decision that he made, you know, he was an adult man who, who decided to give in to this, uh, this obsession a hundred percent. So, um, yeah, it was definitely a, a big, big change in the way that we did business and the way and just in terms of, you know, how he spent his time, how I was managing the people around him, managing the expectations of, of what he could give uh, on his off time. Um, I had not ever seen him like that. But if you look at, again, in the book, there's kind of a through line of of romantic love is very, very important to him. You know, he. He followed his high school sweetheart to college. He, he graduated high school a year early in order to follow his you know, high school sweetheart to college. And then he followed her to um, Provincetown, Massachusetts. And, uh, and then with his second wife, you know, he, um, it was uh, also a very impulsive, very uh, you know, super romantic. He, he had a very close, uh, I would say near-death experience, but a very scary experience in Beirut in 2006. And he had been sort of casually dating this woman, and then came home and was like, "Life is short. <laughs> let's go for it." You know, it's it's a beautiful thing to witness. You know, this. I mean, I when he was alive and when he was engrossed in this relationship with Azia, you know, I was like, "God, this is." You know, I I could only hope to have a love like this. You know, and this is really inspiring. And look how, at sometimes he was, it made him very very happy. So it's, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. It it, it was dark, but also it was sort of captivating you know if, if you didn't if you if you didn't know enough about it to be worried it was sort of amazing you know
0: he was i think you said or someone in the book said he was addicted to love but he was an addict addiction runs in my family and mm-hmm. stuff that he did like my brother is a recovering addict and the stuff he does like my brother now if he works out it's three times a day and i'm like mm-hmm. work out once a day be normal and then you would read about anthony doing jujitsu five times a day and this, I'm like, he was addicted and they get addicted to everything they do. And I'm like, as I'm reading it, I'm like, oh my God, he's reading like just an addict who became addicted to everything he was doing. Right.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I don't know how much he self-identified as an addict, you know, so it's a, it's always a touchy thing to sort of call somebody an addict, uh, in hindsight, but, but yeah, I mean, yes, you know, I think enough people have said it in the book and, you know, I know enough about it myself to say that, like, he approached everything that he was interested in addictively and jujitsu was definitely a part of that. And that was a healthy one, but, you know, I mean, he, he got injured and he by all rights should have not competed. And then two weeks later he's on the mat, you know, and it's like, dude, you tore, like he tore something kind of major, you know? Um, so yeah, you know, it, it, and, and when it's used for good and when it's, you know, when it's used to make, television or to write an amazing book it's a it's a wonderful thing to witness but when it gets destructive and when it get you know when it starts to to consume the rest of your life it's it's very hard to watch and and in tony's case it was impossible to i don't think anybody could have pushed him off that track you know he wasn't interested in hearing you know people tell him that this was no good for him as much as he knew it himself you know
0: you said the family gave you the blessing to write the book you know it's mm-hmm. endorsed by the family they're you know his daughter's receiving stuff from the book, what's their reaction been to it? Did they reach out to you and say they liked it, they didn't like it, what'd they say about it?
1: You know, we haven't spoken, I mean, well actually that's not true. Uh, Tony's brother, Christopher, uh, who is not part of the estate, but he's certainly you know a family member um, and somebody that I've really, I'm very happy to know. I, I never knew him when Tony was alive and so I, I'm, I'm grateful to have met him and, and he's been such a huge help in putting both of these books together. Uh, and he's been very, very supportive, and was very happy with the way that it came out, and 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 pleased. And and Nancy Bourdain also, who was Tony's first wife, was a very, very private person, and I, I wasn't sure if she was going to speak with me. I was so, you know, glad that she did. Uh, she also, you know, said that she was really happy with the way that it turned out. So, you know, you. Two ringing endorsements uh, from people who had a lot to, you know, a lot of stake in it, you know, uh, and and were very, you know, willing to share their their private memories of Tony.
0: What is it about him? I'm obsessed with traveling. I've been to 81 countries. My mom's been to two. And yet, her and I, her and I sit down. And she's like, "Let's watch a new episode." And she wants to see when he's in this country in Thailand. What is it about him that he can relate to me, who loves traveling, loves partying, and my mom who has a glass of wine once every 2 years and has been to here in the DR. Like how does he relate yeah. to everyone?
1: It's really it's really interesting. I you know, I think some of it comes from the fact that he even if he didn't agree with people, he was willing to at least hear them out, to at least have a conversation and ask them questions. And it didn't mean that they were going to change his mind about anything, but that he didn't see any anything wrong with having a conversation. You know, I mean, he met with some probably some pretty odious uh, politicians. Uh, He met with, you know, Ted Nugent, who he arguably had uh, a lot of disagreements with on (laughs) cultural and political issues. But he's like, you know what, I'm going to go hang out with him in his orchard. We're going to shoot guns and have a good time. And I I disagree with almost everything he stands for, but he's my buddy, you know. Um, So I think that's, you know, he doesn't have that thing that some people have where you're kind of like, this is what I stand for. And if you don't believe in it, I'm not for you. You know, he's like, and I think that also that comes from being a guy who who worked really hard for a living and, and struggled financially for 30 years. I mean, he's not somebody that was kind of to the manner born and swans in like uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know, like he knows what it is to work hard. He knows what it is to be disappointed. He knows what it is to, to miss a rent payment or to have the American Express guy calling, you know, uh, threatening you to go to jail. Like, and I think that all gets telegraphed, you know, even, even though he had success later in life, um, you know, I think there's also kind of a, you know, he's a, he's a quintessential New Yorker. And I think that there's just kind of a, that, that thing of being at least open to other opinions and other voices, I think is a kind of a New York quality. I mean, you have to, if you're going to survive and thrive and work, and live in New York City, you've got to be a little bit open-minded. You know, even at the end of the day, you go home and you talk to your spouse or your family and, you know, you have your opinions or whatever, but it's like to get along in the world with all the different kinds of people that you run into, especially in the restaurant business, mm-hmm. right? You've got people who work for you. You've got suppliers, customers, owners, you know, fellow chefs, the press. You've got to be able to kind of be uh, loose and agile and be able to, you know, to to, to talk to people on all levels. So I think. That, you know, and I will say, too, like my mom does also doesn't travel. She you know, my parents used to travel. Now my mom can't travel for health reasons. Didn't matter. She wanted to, you know, because she could watch his shows and learn about a place that she has in some cases never even heard of, you know. But it was very, very, you know, very compelling to her to learn about Okinawa or Mozambique or, you know, places that she's never going to go but she wants to know what they're eating, what they look like and how they get around and, you know, what their jobs are. And Tony really brought all of that to people's living rooms.
0: I kept you up for 40 minutes. Ready to finish up with some quick hit questions? Sure. You and I are hanging out. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back?
1: Oh, God. Um, like a you mean like a celebrity? Yeah. You
0: got a name drop here.
1: OK. OK. Uh, um, Let's see. Annabella Sciorra is pretty, pretty cool. She, I have always loved her work and I got to know her through Tony and Mm -hmm. uh, she and I have become kind of like texting buddies, so.
0: That's a good answer. How about this one? What show are you binge watching right now?
1: Uh, The other two on HBO Max. Is it good? It's so good. Yeah, it's really (laughs) funny. It's got got the soul of like 30 Rock or uh, it's really, it's it's about a, um, It's about a 13-year-old who goes viral, like a Justin Bieber type, and Mm -hmm. then he's got these two older siblings who are kind of losers, but they're in the entertainment industry. So it's all of this sort of humiliations of, you know, living in New York and trying to be famous, basically. It's really good.
0: You said you're in New York now. It's 2 a.m., or you just got back from a long trip. What's your first go-to meal? What meal in New York do you always crave?
1: Mm. I, uh, you know, toast. I know that's like so so (laughs) lame, but (laughs) I'm— I, I always just want, when I come home, I get off the plane or get off the road or whatever. I just want like a buttered toast. It's like, it's like a hug, you know, it's like the, my <laughs> ultimate comfort food and it, you know, i get it in a restaurant, but mostly I'm, you know, it's coming out of my fridge.
0: Travel wise, where to next for Lori?
1: Mm. Uh, I'm talking about going to Madrid in the spring Ooh. with a, with a, with a gentleman friend.
0: <laughs> How about favorite meal you ever had with Tony.
1: Uh, we were in Tokyo uh, in 2016, and uh, he didn't have to shoot that evening. The crew was on their way across the country, so he had a night off, and we just got into a cab from the hotel and went and got just simple chicken yakitori and drank beer and just watched them grill the chicken, and nobody recognized him, and it was my first time in Tokyo, and it was just like, this this is perfection.
0: Amazing. Please give the. Pl- oh, I the to actually. Why wasn't my friend Andy Ricker in the book? They have a good friend
1: from Pock Pock. <laughs> you know, it, I, I you know, at some point it's like you run out of time, you run out of uh, Andy's great. And, you know, Andy came to there was a memorial service and Andy came for that. And he is a he's a fantastic guy. So
0: please give the plug where everyone can get both books.
1: Yes. So uh, World Travel and a reverent Guide and Bourdain the Definitive Oral Biography. They are wherever you buy books. Uh, I would always, you know, if you can make it to an independent bookstore, check them out. And a lot of them ship now. So even if there isn't one in your town, if there's one that's nearby, they'll ship to you. But if, you know, wherever books are sold, it's also at Target, Walmart, Amazon, you know, HarperCollins.com has all the links to all the places.
0: right. thank you so much for doing this. I'm glad we finally got to connect. I had some fun and continued success and everything. Thank you so much. And thank you for writing this book because as a fan, I needed this too. So thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Great to meet you. I'll see you soon, okay? All right, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.